Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, state-of-the-art, streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com nestled in a secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, someplace that even we can't find. Following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am proud to say, as always, I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man right there, Howard Lapidus, manager of the star, or to the star, or from the stars. To the star, get that right. The star, and former concert promoter. That's true, too. You, you and our guests will get along famously today. We have Frank J. Hagen joining us today, and Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, who knows more about our guest's life than he does himself. That should be fascinating. And now... We had cricket sound effects, which is the sound of our audience. We say, everything's quiet in Cashman Field. 1970. 1970. 1970. It was in 1970 that I got a phone call from somebody, probably Alan Goldblatt, saying, there's going to be a concert in Cashman Field where there's quiet, there's lots of crickets. A guy named Gary DeSeef is putting on a thing called Vega 70, the first big giant rock festival concert thingy in the history of Sin City. I said, oh, okay, I'll talk to the guy. Terry McManus and I did the commercial, started to sell tickets, and asked what happened next. Let's ask Gary DeSeef, the man who brought rock and roll to Las Vegas. Hi, Gary. Hey, bro. How you doing? Better and better. We can turn down the crickets now. We got our explosion. We got Gary on the air. <laughs> That's right, thank you. Hey, with Vegas 70, when you tried to do that first big rock festival in Las Vegas, Nevada, what happened? Well, it was the first big concert that they would have had. Uh, it wasn't exactly a festival. It was going to last one night, but it was multiple acts, and it was kind of designed after uh, Woodstock, which had just happened a few months before. And it, and it was my very first concert also. And ah. um, so I was looking for a venue. And uh, I was in a bar one night, couldn't find a venue, and I had Janis Joplin agreeing to play. And I drank a bottle of Remy Martin and my uh, leave it to a bartender to sort through the haze. He suggested I go to Cashman Field. I said, ah, oh, an outdoor concert. That's exactly perfect. So that's how we got to that point. Yeah. Uh, the Cash Cashman Field was owned by the Elks Lodge. It wasn't owned by the city government. It was owned by the Elks, uh, the Elks Club. Yeah. And uh, we had to make arrangements with them to do the show there. And um, from there on, I started uh, Green as Can Be to produce a rock show. Yeah, you found out it wasn't as easy as it sounds on paper, or it reads on paper, sounds well, on the radio. Well, it, it never is. It's, uh, this is Howard, and it's a pleasure to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. How are you, Howard? And I am uh, as good as I can be. Now, good. going back to uh, that, what, what happened to Burl? How's been last week? Burl has just left the building. Um, <laughs> one piece of chicken, and he's gone. Um, but, uh, Gary, going back to doing a show outside first time, and it's your first show of that uh, of that nature, correct? Very first concert. And the folks at Cashman Field had never done anything. I mean, walk us through the tripping over yourself part. <laughs> it, it, well, actually, you know, before that, I had I had been working at the, a new hotel that had just opened out there at Caesars Palace, and I was the, really the fair-haired boy out there. Oh, yeah. And I was involved in a family, and I had a, a teamster, very powerful teamster boss that was my father-in-law, very influential in the city, and there was a lot of um, 
a lot of you know you had to have juice in that town if you wanted to do something. And well, this, juice this, in Vegas is uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry, juice. <laughs> so I was looking for funding. And uh, my father-in-law had suggested that I go to Jay Sarno, the owner and builder of Caesar's Palace. Right. And, and he eventually gave me the money. What, and I booked it. what, what did so, you need? What, what did you need to front that show? Well, in those days, I asked. I just got thirty thousand is what I wanted to do. With. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't much. It's not much today. It was a lot then. Uh, uh, you and, sure? You know, it was, it was basically for deposits for the deposit on the hall. And the advertising in Vegas was really cheap. And uh, all the insurances and the necessities and the posters and things and tickets. And that would have got us going, did get us going. And um, I had met a, a person by the name of Alan Goldblatt, who Bill had mentioned to just a minute ago. He was the brother of Larry Goldblatt, who was the manager of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, who had just played Caesar's Palace for us. Uh, and they actually got me into the into the game. Uh, they were going to do a show for me, but they couldn't come for eight months, and I wanted to do something right away. So we put this together, and uh, I went on. Um, I wanted to do something different. Being from watching, see, I interned at Caesars. They had paid my way through college, and I was kind of a fair-haired boy there. And uh, I watched the way they promoted that lavish hotel. It was the most lavish they had ever seen in Las Vegas at the time. Back sure. Back in '66. And uh, so I wanted to do. I didn't want to be the same as everybody else in Las Vegas. No, the concerts in Las Vegas that they had tried hadn't done well. And um, so I followed uh, my lessons from Caesar's Palace in promotion. I went outside the city. I, Alan had steered me towards Burl and Terry McManus, who were working in the Seattle radio station. And after considerable time, over about two, to about two in the morning, uh, giving them one-liners and describing the venue, I subsequently received the commercials from them. And uh, when I heard the commercial, I, it just, I, I fell. I just felt I couldn't believe. It wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. I wanted a big city feel. I didn't want the same little local town with the screaming jocks trying to, you know. You just didn't want it. And uh, and I did the same thing with my posters. He, he steered me to a fellow by the name of Dean Torrance, who was from Jan and Dean fame. He had a company called Kitty Hawks Graphics in Los Angeles. And he did designed all of our posters and all of our all of our corporate stuff and everything. And from that, uh, I was in Los Angeles, and I was going down Sunset Boulevard, and I saw a big sign, one of these big billboards that they have down there on Sunset Boulevard. And it, it was advertising a movie with um, uh, Chris Christopherson and... Um, Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. And I just thought it was, I just, it just threw me. I thought, wow, how, how impressive that was. So I went back to Las Vegas, and I got the two corners of the busiest intersection. They were both still desert but it was the busiest intersection in town. It led to the mall. And I rented both sites. They each had billboard spots on them. And I produced oil paint billboards. They did them in oils, and it, it actually was it was just, they're magnificent. I mean, nobody had ever done them like that before. And nighttime, people were standing around them looking at it because they were just biting up. And, and that really saved it. It only cost me about 500 a month in those days for those. Mm. And that that eliminated a lot of advertising needs in the newspapers and things. And with that with the radio stations, uh, pretty much could cover the city. What I did do, instead of going in the newspapers, is I went down to the L.A. Free Press and bought a quarter-page ad for every day up until the concert. And and Alan Goldblatt, who had, who I said was the brother of Blood, Sweat, Tears, Mandarin, he worked for uh, 
Jay Bernstein and Associates, which right. is a big PR firm out of out of Hollywood, right. and, and he was handling a little bit of Chicago, and he he coordinated. I hired them to coordinate the concert, and they they put up 800 lines and numbers, and had peace trains and love trains coming in. People could call in and get rides with people to offset the cost. And so we went on sale, and within two weeks of the concert, I had about $327,000, I'm sorry, $227,000 in ticket sales. And tickets were like seven bucks. And most of them were coming from out of town because there had been a controversy. Uh, I woke up one morning, my wife threw the paper on my <laughs> on my chest, and she says, here, big shot, you made the newspapers. I, I was green, I had no idea. And uh, it said, City Ponders, City Fathers Ponders Huge Rock Fest. And I still didn't get it, I said, I'm not doing a festival. Not me, but it, and then the kicker, the underlining thing says, Cashman thing, the Cashman Field thing slated. So I read down, read down, and it turns out that the Downtown Casino Association were afraid of an infested hippies, and they were going to get the, the commissioners to, to cancel the show. And from there, it went into a whole seven, six, seven days full of, uh, it was on the news, it was in the front page all the time. It made us kind of, you know, it was our first show, but we were well known after that. And uh, <laughs> long story short, they had a, my father-in-law brought the teamster attorney down to the commission meeting. It was jam-packed. and. And uh, they got a, they held it in advance, and they put they went into a recess. And we went to the back room, and uh, he was talking to him. He he knew who was who was doing it. It was Benny Benyon from Benny Benyon's Horseshoe Club, and he said, "Give me 24 hours." He said, "Now straighten this shit out." And I'm young. I'm look watching this guy operate, and this guy was magic. He could do anything he wanted in town. And so the mayor was a good friend of his, and they said, well, okay, we're going to we're gonna give you some time. But then the guy that gave me the money, Jay Sarnold, they didn't like him. He was from the county, and this was in the city, and they didn't like his, his, his they didn't like him. So he jumped up and says, this kid's not operating on a shoestring. I'll put up a million dollars. And he pointed to his shoes, and that did it. That undid all the goodwill that the Teamster attorney and my father-in-law did, and they went out and they voted to cancel the show. Mm. And they canceled that concert uh, it was, it was devastating. I'd never experienced um, anything like that in my life, especially politics. I couldn't understand how they could do something Yeah, I mean, the like guy that. stands up and says, I'll put out a million dollars to guarantee this thing, and they go, go against it because they don't like him. That's right. That's exactly right. They didn't like him at all, and that was my main problem. That was the problem with the show. It wasn't so much uh, that they wanted to really cancel it. They probably could overcome it, but he was the problem. And my father-in-law told me, you got to keep this guy quiet. And I said, well, how can you shut this guy up? You can't shut this guy up. If he says something, he says something. Well, he did, and they canceled it. So I was down and depressed, and I was uh, I just couldn't understand it. And um, I was on actually on the floor in my hallway talking to Alan. I just he was going over it and being feeling sorry for myself. And he says, I'll get up off the floor and do it again. <laughs> And so I did, and I got up, and I, I went to my father-in-law again, and he got me into the convention center, and from there it started an onslaught of concerts that we had, like, 40 straight sellouts, and I just never looked back, and I was fortunate. Who is so Who's there Jay? you go. The, the, um, back at the, in the day, I mean, and, and this was a business I was in, and I don't know if you know Michael Cole or uh, uh, if you know Deborah Rathwell. No. Uh, Sorry. Deborah runs AEG uh, East Coast, New York. Um, senior VP. Uh, Michael Cole was uh, CPI Toronto, but he, he consolidated Live Nation. Oh, 
And uh, I came up with uh, Rathwell was my assistant. She's now running show business. And then uh, Cole just uh, ran off with all the money. Familiar <laughs> <laughs> story. In, in, in a good way. He owns. Uh, he owns. I think a third of the Stones now, and that's that's a fact. Uh, but but uh, uh, politics and and concert business uh, at that level, I, I certainly understand it. There, we were doing. Uh, we, there's a racetrack outside of Ottawa, Canada, and we selected that place because it was there. They didn't know anything, and that's the be better, best way to have your venues. And, yeah. and you know that. And and um, <coughs> we we put the uh, Eagles Hotel California show on sale, sold 25,000 tickets in you know half a day. And back then it. it you know, those were hard tickets and real, you know, non-computer uh, sales. Right, right, gotcha. So uh, I get a call from the uh, the head of the township where this uh, racetrack is, and he says, "You the guy that's doing the show, uh, the those Eagles uh, guys?" Yeah, I said that'd be me. And you're saying you're going to have uh, upwards of about seventy thousand people in there? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be very successful. We already sold twenty-five thousand. You are again? He says, well, I'm the head of the, the township, and um, uh, you're not doing that show. <laughs> so I go to the township meeting. After I do a little research on this guy, I realize it's an election year, and I sit and I listen to him again. And basically what that meeting was, and, and in the concert business, I, I say this to people because they don't know what we have to go through to pr produce these concerts. But these guys were sitting there going, our hand is out. Um, how, uh, geez, how are we going to pay for the fire department? How are we going to pay for the police? And uh, there I am, piecing it out. And then that wasn't enough. <laughs> and the guy said, you're not doing the show. And it's an election year. And I said to him, then I'm not going to be the one that tells all the people it's not happening. That would be you. And I got up and I started to leave. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think it's, uh, maybe we can work this out. Yeah, maybe we can. Right. And the, the show, of course, the show always goes on. The show goes on. But it goes on with these people that are just incredible. You know all about this. And um, I, I'm very impressed that, that, that you kind of grasped that market because the the Vegas market for doing what you do is is a tough one. You've got a lot of noise to overcome there. Well, you know, in, in Las Vegas, you know, I, I, you may you may have known or remember Associated Booking Corporation out of New York, yep. ABC, mm -hmm. and there was a fellow there that ran that ran it was Oscar Cohen, mm -hmm. and and that company was owned by Sidney Korshak actually, who was a, a kind of a mob lawyer kind of a guy and in charge of a lot of stuff in Hollywood. But anyhow, I was talking to to. Uh, Oscar on the phone one day, and he said, well, you guys out there in Las Vegas, you think you're all different than everybody else. I said, where, where are you at? Where am I talking to you at? He says, New York. And he got real quiet, and he got my drift. I said, well, talk about difference. But, <laughs> but he was right. We were different, and when I started doing shows, when I did those 40 sellouts, it wasn't easy. Oh. There was a, there was there was a controversy though every show. Sure. Every show, I had to fight the city and the free and all. And we, see, they, we had a convention center here that was exactly that. It was part of the convention center and it was private. It wasn't public. It wasn't a public facility. It was financed by the room tax from all the hotels, and the board consisted of all of the politicians 
and a few of the executives from the hotel. And they had built this convention center, and they built this beautiful 8,000-seat, uh, uh, looked like a spaceship. It was called the Rotunda. And it was plush and carpeted, and the, the seats were really thickly padded. And it was, you know, it was, it was up, upscale. And they didn't want this in there. But there was a lot of pressure uh, coming on. And they, they were like two years behind, you know. There was concerts going on everywhere, and we weren't getting anything here. And timing is everything. And the board was full of, of Mormon, Mormon uh, LDS-dominated with the board. The, the commissioners were all Mormon, and they, we just stood for everything they were against. And so it was a battle every single show. I mean, every show was a battle. But you, get, you become immune to it. And at one point, when they tell you they're going to take your permits away right in the you know, day before the show, you just put your head down and say, I'm doing it anyhow. And that's what I did. And I just said, you know, I never took no again, never listened to them. Uh, I'd go to their meetings, but I never said no. I just kept adding. So then they put a rule in, the, in there. You could only do one a month. For what on earth does that rule make any sense? Appeasement. Just to appease the public, to say they're doing it. That's yeah. all it was. Yeah. They didn't want them. Mm-hmm. And so I got, I got a date uh, on uh, for Halloween night with Sly Stone, which Burl and Terry... Mm-hmm famously called the night of the black cat <laughs> and i i did a, a halloween night show and a and a and next saturday uh, the next day show afternoon show i would put two shows on with sly and i, I was i was broke because of this uh, janice joplin thing but i got sly to come in on a, on a straight percentage basis so i didn't have to put up any deposits i borrowed five thousand dollars on my home to buy the bill to, to buy the hall and buy the advertising and uh, we're, we're doing well with the show. And uh, the day of the show, now they did, we handled our own tickets there. They had a ticket office, but they didn't have any kind of ticket system. They had nothing. So my wife was running the ticket office. Right. And they came to us the day of the show and said, you got to move out of the rotunda because Richard Nixon wants to do a speech. He just came to town and, and well, I figured I, there's nothing I can do. But they took us down to what the, the North Hall or the South Hall, whatever they called it. And we had to do it on an open floor, big, huge concrete floor. And so it was like festival seating. Anyhow, we just did tremendous business. But Sly came late. Oh, you, at least he showed up. Yeah, he showed up. But he came late, and yeah. um, I got the police to extend the curfew, and finally he played, and it all went. It didn't turn out too bad after all that. But the next day I get a, a, a call from Colonel John Anderson, who was the facilities director, and he was an ex-Nellis Thunderbird pilot. He was a great guy. I had a great rapport with this guy. And he was supportive. He was a musician himself. And he said, some of the board members want me to convey to you that please don't bring any more blacks to town. Oh, good. And, and I thought to myself, what? <laughs> well, it, it, again, you know, I just thought this is never going to end. I knew then it was going to be something always. And so I just said um, to myself, well, not, there's no way they're ever going to say anything to me if I do. Because what are they going to do? You're going to go public and say they, you know, they, they, they're not going to admit that they said that. So the next show, I put on, a, I put a black deck on the show. The show after that, I put a black deck on the show. The show after that, I put Rare Earth in, who was white, but the recorder from Motown, right. and they drew blacks. You That's know? right. Yeah. So, so I just, I, I just famously put blacks whenever I could out there. I loved their music, and they drew people. And uh, yeah, Sly was a little risky. We all knew that. He had to put up a ten thousand dollar bond eventually with him cash bond and nobody would do it so I bought all of his dates I, I did shows with Sly and it was a, it was a heart attack but you knew he was going to draw people yeah. he, the, pe- the people were always there before him that's for sure <laughs> I mean, Sly Stone could sell out today if he decided to show up and do it but you know, the Columbia Records gave him a deal 
to give him a million dollars for every record he finished. It didn't matter how many he finished in a year, and he couldn't do it. And we all know why. Yeah. And uh, it was just a shame because he was a, a, a really a, a genius kind of a guy, talent. Yep. And I always got along with him, you know. But uh, he was a, he was a, he was a handful. But uh, he made money for us. He made us a lot of money. Now I always but, wondered, uh, maybe Howard, maybe you know. I mean, I read the uh, quote you. Time goes by quickly when you get old and senile, such as I. But it was uh, several years ago, maybe five, ten years ago. The Sly supposedly was doing quite well and was recording some new music, some new material, and I never heard another word about it. You know what? I heard the same thing and never heard another word about it. No one well, ever did. Working, he just he heard some words about it. Nor, nor did I, <laughs> nor did I expect to hear it. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, it's, it, but it's good to have you uh, uh, on the show. But this is something I rarely talk about. Uh, this part of my career only because people don't know or understand it and they don't understand what a promoter does they think well well you bring the guy into town and you make nothing but money and, and yeah, right. well uh, you could make a lot of money in those days you know they used to say you have a good show the next day you go out and pay cash for a car yeah and that's the kind of that's the kind of money you used to we used to make but uh, you know what they didn't have any idea what you went through to get it no and no and, and, and it was and it was always something there was one show i was doing i was doing yes and, and they were that tour was when they were working in the round and the stage was they would travel with their stage which was operated mechanically so it would Did turn through a drum kit that rose 50 feet in the air a whole <laughs> nine yards but, but it, it, you had a, yes the whole our, our normal way of doing things and, and you, know, you know this Gary that uh, that's all thrown off yeah everything's changed it's like you're, it's like day one now but everything is going perfect on this particular day and it's like four in the afternoon and and I said to Rathwell I said everything's going well you know uh, nothing's happened. <laughs> What's wrong? <Right. laughs> At five o'clock, I get a call. The stage ran over one of the stage hands' foot, and it's dangling. Uh, the foot of the stage. The foot. The foot of the stage. The foot. Now that that put us behind because of what happened. That put us behind over an hour and a half, and. I had the, you know, the usual curfew issue on the other side of it, and people don't understand what happened, how it happened. You know, all they know is the show went on, and damn those guys, they were late. <laughs> you, know, you know, blame it on the band. Blame it on the band. Right. Well, you know, you know, there's a lot of crazy. Anything can happen. It doesn't matter if it's the politicians, if it's the band, if it's something like you just talked about. Let me tell you. Right after that fly show, I finally got to go into the really nice rotunda. And I had the Canadian group, the Guess Who, coming in. And I had uh, I had put four or five acts on the show. I put Tower of Power and, I, uh, you know, Gypsy and a bunch of acts. And, and, and we sold it out. And I wanted to do something. Um, we, we, you know, we sold out the day of the show. We, they always bought their tickets last because we never sold. They never sold the signed seats. But I thought, you know, I want to do a press conference. And I wanted to do it. The obvious place was to do it at, at, at the convention center. And what I wanted to do it for was to make sure they knew the band was in town so people would show up. I like Sly when they had to wait. Right. And so I, I called my, my alma mater, Caesars Palace, and they put together a, a, a beautiful uh, situation in one of their convention rooms. And we all the press showed up, and we gave an open bar. It was just jam-packed. And um, we got in there, and... Uh, 
Burton Cummings gets in there and he gets up there and he starts talking. I've never met him. It's my only my second show. I had no idea. I just knew I knew how to do a press conference because I've been Caesars for a number of years. But these guys got up there and they you know, had a beer in their hand and they were and it, it, it just the the opposites of Caesars so plush and this gruffy band from from Canada. It, but it worked. It just worked. Everybody was having a good time. So Burton Cummings says they asked him. They said, "Well, how do you feel about coming out of laid back San Diego? They played San Diego the night before." Mm-hmm for a guy named Jim Padney. And uh, they said, uh, how, do you, how does it feel come here and then come to Vegas? He said, well, we like our we like our audience in Las Vegas, he said, but we hate the promoter. He's a shit promoter. <laughs> and I thought, I said, I said oh, Jesus. <laughs> so I said, well, this is going to get interesting. Yeah. And then, so then they start talking to him, and he says, and Marion Asif is a first-class promoter. He's the, you know, and I thought, this guy don't even know me. Right. But I figured because of the, the ambience of Caesar's Palace and the billboards and the sold-out show and everything, so he just, but he, he played his part well. So we go over to the, what I'm getting at is we go to the convention center, and it looks like it's going to sell out. My wife's telling me how it's going to be. Now. I'm in the, in, in the ticket office doing something, and in comes Don Hunter, the, the, the manager, right. and Jerry Heller, the agent. Yep. And they, they look at me, and, and I was brand new. I just The first time I'd met him. And they looked down, and they said, how's it going? I said, oh, it's going good. We're going go, to go clean before it's even time to open. And Hunter says, well, that's good. He says, but uh, where's the sound? I said, what do you mean, where's the sound? It's on the stage. I saw it when they were loaded in when I went to Caesars. He said, there's no sound on the stage. And I thought they were, they were kidding me. So I went along. And Hunter said, well, let's go back to the arena and let's take a look. So we walked into the arena. And there it was, stacked all across the stage, these huge speakers. You know, and I said, there it is. And I thought, they're kidding. He says, the thief. He says, that's the group's Marshall amplifiers. They play their instruments through that. Uh, I said, damn, I forgot to order the sound. Oh, no. Now oh, it's no. 4 o'clock, 4 oh. o'clock with 8,000 people. I said, well, I'll get a sound. It's Las Vegas. There's got to be a sound. There was nothing. Nothing. So a, a stagehand knew a girl in, in Bakersfield, California, that owned a, sound, a concert sound system. But you couldn't drive it. It was four hours away by right. truck, so I had to fly it in. No kidding. Uh, Helicopter? No, I, I had chartered a plane down there. It, it, it only cost me seven hundred dollars in those days, was, you know. But but I had to do it, and we got it in, and we got it in on time and saved the show. But it's just, you know, it, the good thing never, someone mentioned that, Gary. Well, uh, it's it's. it's <laughs> <laughs> and Burton, you know, Winnipeg, Manitoba is where they're from. And, and, uh, yeah, I, Winnipeg, Manitoba. I had my years with those guys. I used to run them from one end of the, of the country to another once a year. And, uh, you know, always, the guests who always did well yeah. in Canada always it, did well. Well, I did a ton of shows with them. They always sold tickets. They meant another group, Rare Earth. Similar type of audience, you know. They had that that top forty stations, but they played on the FM stations, and they just they just always drew people. They were popular, mm-hmm. and uh, so they were a good bet. They were a good bet too. I got one question. This is Frank. In those Hi, days, how were there weird concert riders? And if so, what was the weirdest one that you had to deal with? Well, they weren't. You know, in those days, they weren't that weird. They got weird when they just when they started realizing they could do it as time went on. They got a little more eccentric and a little more, uh, you know, uh, a little more demanding. But there wasn't really uh, uh, what, what I found they used to do. One of the one of the unusual things when it first started happening, Joe Cocker and, and Mad Dogs and Englishmen were touring, and the Barbara Skydell from Premier Talent gave me a call. And she said, "Joe Cocker's available. He's one of my favorite acts." I said, "Yeah, I'll take him." 
and I offered him $25,000 to play, which was probably $10,000 too much. The but U.S. I Coast Guard is suspending and, uh, search efforts for a man so who jumped said, overboard. Said, well, he won't play unless you can, he needs to have, she said, and this is serious, he won't play. He needs two cases of Don Perrinone champagne. Mm -hmm. and it, was, it, it was rationed in those days. Yep. You, you, could, you couldn't get it. So I called the Teamsters, and I got it, and I called her back. She, she, she didn't believe I got it. Right. So I got it. So then I called Caesar's Palace, and the kid that, that was running, the, a friend of mine had opened the, opened the place. He was running the room service, and he got a couple of his waiters, and he, we gave a couple of tickets to the uh, a couple of the chefs there, and they hand-carved Joe Cocker, and they hand-carved the guitars, and they came over with this big table, filled it with ice, and these big hand carvings of these, these these entertainers are on there, and there's shrimp, and there's Don Perignon, and it was, it was crazy. So I never could figure out why he wanted the Don Perignon, and I was innocent, never didn't know what was going on. We go to do the settlement, and his road manager comes in, and he's got this brown briefcase, and he throws it out on the table open, and in it, one half of it's got one big bag of white powder, huge bag of white powder. And I thought, oh, my wife sees that. She said, you know, I knew what it was. So right away, I knew what it was. First, I thought it might be heroin, but I knew it was cocaine. And I just thought, oh, my God. And then it dawned on me why he wanted the champagne. And, and I, you know, those kind of things. So that's when it started to get a little eccentric. Um, you know, what I would do, they would make demands that weren't in the writer. And I had heard that Bill Graham used to get a stamp, and he'd put on there, if they'd ask for something, he'd just stamp it. This wasn't ordered when we made the initial deal. We're happy to, we're happy to supply it for you, but you'll pay for it. And more times than not, they said, we don't need it, you know, that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, it, it got that way later on, but um, it would wasn't... It wasn't terrible. It was, uh, but there, the 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 worst situation I had, and this isn't even bad, was early, 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 early on. And for the life of me, I can't remember who the van was. But they they uh, asked for wishbone Italian dressing <laughs> for yeah, the dressing that kind of stuff. for yeah, the when they start doing when they start doing the meal riders and stuff, they started getting they asked for steak and this and that. Well, I, I, on the wishbone. I had whatever I, I had an Italian dressing there, and they come to me and they go, uh, "This isn't wishbone Italian dressing." And this I said, "Too well, good." <laughs> I said, "Well, they really uh, it, they don't sell it in Canada, and they didn't at that time." Probably done. So he yeah. said, "Well, we have to have it." So I get in the car and I, I drive to New York for the crew meal, for the damn crew meal. Yeah. I drive 60 miles to, in, in the New York State and get. Cases of wishbone dressing. Now I got to bring it across the border, and they're going, "What's with the wishbone?" <laughs> <laughs> so now I've got to try you and yeah, the uh, customs because I got cases of the. They never saw anybody in a car with cases of salad dressing. This is new, <laughs> so there's got to be something wrong with that salad dressing because what's this? And I'm a kid with the beard going, and you know, and and uh, I made it made it up there in time, and we served it. But damn. I had to make that drive. It became a, a, a it, it got to a point though where we got ahead of the band. I think we started to serve crew meals on China, and we and and by the way, the food had to be really good because I had to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so I made sure all the food was as good as as possible. Yeah, I I've, I've had like. There have to be 12 baked chicken, boneless, skinless chicken breasts, and 12 fried in batter. Well, it can happen. Yeah, know. that was Kiss. Yeah. Oh, Kiss. Catering, catering became very important. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I found, though, what they used to do before they start entering the different colored uh, 
candies and stuff in their in their rider and you know right sorting out the M&Ms and all that kind of stuff. Well, that that was uh, wasn't that Van Halen, Van Brown Halen. M&Ms. Yeah, yeah, well, that was to make sure, that, though. That, yeah. was, that was just to make sure that somebody read the contract. Well, yeah. then there's the green uh, M&M story, Mark. It's, M&M's very, very popular in rock and roll. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> well, they did that because they could. Right. <laughs> they, just, right. they were it was a little centric to men. But before that, the groups, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't ask for a whole lot, but... They would always ask for so many cases of beer, maybe Coors, some certain kinds of wine. Oh, it was always stuff, Coors. Stuff like that. So then, so then, you, invariably every show before the opening act of this closing act went on, the road manager, the, my stage manager, would come up to the ticket office and he'd say, "The band needs more beer." I said, "What are you talking about? We gave me cases of beer. What are you?" But anyway, I said, "I give it to him." And it took me a few shows to realize the roadies were putting it on the bus. Have beer will travel. Yeah, that's right. Have beer will travel. But they would do that sort of stuff. But, you know, I I never had a great, uh, really intimate relationship with, not intimate by intimate, but I mean a close relationship with with too many of the big artists because they were on this here today, gone tomorrow travel schedule, and you couldn't really, you know, get a meaningful relationship with. But people that I did have a great relationship with was the road managers and some of the roadies and I took care of those guys because they'd come they back they be coming back around with different bands and 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 they would they would you know if they saw that you were the promoter it would uh, it would make the deal go easier that was the smart way to go always the smart way to go <laughs> although I, I got to jump in here and tell one of my few uh, concert stories this will be a brief one I got a call one day from uh, Barbara Strom who ran White Rose Limited out of Los Angeles and then in Seattle and she calls me up, and got to remember, I'm working at this particular point at a, a structural steel store in Walla Walla, Washington, helping out my dad. And I get this call while I'm waiting on these farmers buying their welding rod. And it's, uh, I've got the Temptations uh, coming in. Who should I have for an opening act? And I said, don't get an opening act. So you get the four tops, put them on stage with the Temptations, enough microphones for all of them at once, just like Motown 25, have them do each other's songs back and forth. All of that, she goes, okay, do that. Bam, sold out four shows at the Paramount Theater in Seattle, and I'm emceeing the shows. And as the, the saying goes, the uh, four tops took me back to the hotel to introduce me to the Temptations. <laughs> but uh, they did not believe that Barbara Strom, who was the promoter, was the promoter. They thought I was. And I kept saying, no, I'm not the promoter. I'm just the guy saying, and now. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. And this is really going to sound strange. No black woman could have the brains, this guy says, to do this, put this show together. It takes a smart Jew boy to know how to promote a concert. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Well, that's correct, brother. Well, (laughs) it takes smart Jew boys to do a lot of things. There you go. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for uh, sliding that in. uh, You're welcome. CG boy. You're welcome there, sir. You mentioned it's kind of slid by in the audience. have heard the name or not, but Barbara Skydell is the first person I bought Springsteen from. Yeah, yeah, back in those days. She was, she, I liked Barbara. She was just a great girl. Yep, a good, a good agent, smart. I mean, she was, she was the Barcelona's right hand. I mean, that's for sure, up there. But you know, let me say, well, I just got something I think you'll enjoy. Uh, you talk about what was the most eccentric thing. Well, before I ever did concerts, when I was at Caesar's Palace, I was like the assistant entertainment director there, where I interned. And we brought Tiny Tim into the main show. Room. Ah, I yeah. remember him. Okay, Tiny Tim. Tiptoe. In his heyday, fresh Herb. off of Johnny Carson and all. And so, Tiny, so what we used to do with all our entertainers, they would all get comps, room, food, and beverage. They would get their rooms, and they could sign anything they wanted to, if they wanted to eat. 
So the first day, rehearsals, are, they're getting ready for rehearsals, and we get a call from the chef, and he says, uh, we want you to authorize. He said, Tiny Tim is ordering from his room, and Dave Vickerson, the entertainment director, he thought they were being a little prejudiced. Wouldn't know why they, why, well, so what? They knew he was comp. He says, well, it's the order. And he told him that he was ordering a, a, an ordinate amount of steaks, and so it's like he was having a party or something. So Dave and I go up there to the suite. We knock on the door, and there's a publicist there, and nobody else. Tiny's in his room. We walk in the room, the bedroom. He's sitting in the middle of this huge king-sized bed, surrounded by 27 New York steaks with baked potatoes, untold amount of caviar, all kinds of things. He's eating alone. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it's something else. It was hilarious, actually, but you just kind of, you kind of wonder what. Did he know? eat all 27 of them? Who knows? We <laughs> left him alone. We left him alone. He's a, he was a big guy, Tiny Tim. He it was yeah. a, a big guy, and, and Miss Vicky, and, uh, when they were there, I did them in Buffalo, New York. Um, and the crowd showed up and bought tickets, and he came out. And uh, there was no show other than Tiptoe Through the Tulips. That, that's all the guy had. Yeah, he, he, he had a couple of songs. But, he, he, you know, after that, after he hit, that ran out for him, that stick, he, he uh, joined a band. Was it Camper Beethoven or something like that? He was in a good band. He, was, he must have been a player because that band was pretty good for a long while until he died. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly the name. It was something Beethoven. But Tiny was in that band, and I didn't know it for a while until later on, until after he died. But they were they were pretty good. And he also was an expert on old music. I mean, he's you know because he'd do that, that old stuff like Tiptoe Through the Tulips. But you could ask any obscure you know from a song from the 1920s or 1919, and he could tell you everything about it. Now, as far as having a memorabilia, somewhere in all my stuff, I have the contract between Tiny Tim and the Tonight Show. For the Miss Vicky wedding, right, right. Well, that was the same time period he came up and played Caesars. Right during yeah. that time period, you know. Let me ask you something. What was the worst thing that happened to you on one of your shows? A, a catastrophe or something? What, did you ever have anything like that? Uh, well, the guy cutting off his foot was always a, a <laughs> that, that that goes up there. Well, um, here's one. Here's go one, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. Go ahead. What's well, here's your... one Burl, Burl will remember, because Burl was at this show. I don't know if he knows about this incident. And Burl was there because of his Baha'i faith, and his friend Seals and Croft were playing for us in Las Vegas. Right. Remember Burl? Yeah. And I felt bad. I, at first, I wasn't going to book him because I said, well, they're too soft for that arena, and I don't know. But they were all over the airwaves. They had two or three songs out, and England, Dan, and John Ford Crowley, who was related to one of them, right. they had the hit records, and they were there on the country music show. So they sold the place out. So they go in there and they're singing, and they had to stop four or five times to tell the audience to try and be quiet. And the audience, it was a party for them. Vegas was nothing but a, you know, a peer group thing, really, a lot of the shows. And so at the ticket office, my wife was at the ticket office, and a, a young guy that came home on leave from Vietnam had come to, to the ticket office and wanted a ticket. His girlfriend was inside, and it was a surprise. And... We didn't have any tickets, so Sandy let him in to thank him for his service. So he goes in, and he's walking around, and he finds her on the load, which is on the lip of, down below, above the main floor. And she's on the arms of two guys. This kid went nuts. There was a fight. They threw him over the balcony. He hit head first on the concrete, and he was paralyzed for life. I mean, it was the most devastating thing that ever happened at one of my shows that I can think about. 
Uh, just you, know, you just never knew what was going to happen at those places. Yeah, like Altamont. Be glad you wouldn't run that. That, uh, that show, the Eagles show that I was talking about, where I had the problem with the uh, the township. There was always something on that show uh, about well, maybe a week and a half out, and we've got and at that point uh, sixty thousand seats sold, and you know, not even seats, just people coming in and sitting in the middle of the racetrack. And I get a call from the Ontario Board of Health. And guy goes, uh, are you the guy doing that uh, show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I figure he's looking for free tickets. I, you know, I thought there's always somebody looking for free tickets. You know that. And he goes, uh, well, you, you know, you can't do the show. Oh, now I get another guy telling me I can't do the show. And I've got 60000 so. I said, why can't we do the show? He says, well, you're doing it at that uh, racetrack, and uh, the racetrack uh, only seats 2,500 people. I said, yeah, 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 but I'm using the whole thing. He goes, yeah, but it's, it's, there's only uh, lavatory facilities for 2,500, and you're going to have 60,000. So uh, how do we do this? I said, well, here's Johnny. (laughs) At that point in time, I was aware of the existence of every porta potty between (laughs) Ottawa and Winnipeg. And I I had to get, uh, I think it was 150 of those things, and that was going to be enough for half. And then the other half was in this guy's pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. was, you know, there, there were so many payoffs on that damn show. Uh, and at the end of the day, I, I was wondering, did I have any money? And the, the truth is, is don't ever tell Irving Azoff that we controlled the building, we controlled the merch, we controlled the food. We got out of there with our ass. But it was yeah. that was one of those shows that uh, that you're right about. Now, Gary, yeah. you, you were you were obviously you were in Las Vegas. You were uh, I can remember we were doing the the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts. We're there for the. Uh, the big open, you had Neil Diamond and God knows who else. He got, probably God himself was there. Steve Martin and uh, who was the chick he was dating at the time? They were there having dinner. And uh, was it? Uh, oh, yeah, Steve Martin. Remember that he came in. He did the commercials for you guys. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, yeah. Uh, his manager told the story about meeting Jerry Lewis when he was a kid and all that stuff. But uh, there was that transition time in Vegas between, shall we say, the overt mob years and the corporate years, which I don't really know if it's all the same thing. Right. <laughs> well, no. Well, it wasn't. It, 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 yeah. It, 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 you're right. There was a transition. It was and, the Howard Hughes uh, Mormon Mafia transition you're talking about. Well, the, the, the more they call it the Mormon Mafia because the LDS people were running his life, you know, for him and, and controlling everything, and you couldn't see him. Uh, but actually at Caesar's Palace, when they sold Caesar's Palace, the real reason they sold Caesar's Palace was the Lums bought it, uh, and uh, they got a deal on it. But there was a, a fellow out of New York called um, uh, a mobster out of New York, Tony Solano, Pat Tony Solano, and he he was he had money in this place. And the guy that was running the casino, Jerome Zerowitz, was uh, supposedly the FBI said he was associated. And they finally forced him to sell, or they were going to take their license away. That's why they sold that hotel. Uh, and then that's when it started. That's when it started. When Lums bought it, that's when the whole transition for the uh, uh, for the corporate coming in. And the Hilton bought the, bought the Flamingo and bought the uh, the International from uh, Kurt Kikorian, uh 
you know, and, and that was the first really major corporation. Well, as, as I recall, once didn't you have a, a very strange and unusual non-contract contract? I don't know. I guess it was maybe with the uh, uh, Caesar of the Aladdin, where you had like a bungalow or something, and <laughs> yeah, you well, never. You know, that's, uh, that, that story is another another great story. I was uh, I was on my ass. I was broke, and I had. Uh, uh, it was raining, and I was I had a I had a penthouse, and I got an eviction notice, and I I had enough money to rent a truck, and I didn't know where to go, and I went to Reno because I had done shows there, and I had a I had about 125 dollars, a 300 dollar credit card, and whatever I had could I couldn't get my furniture, whatever I had personal I had in a little U-Haul, and I'm driving, and I get to about 110 miles out of Vegas to a, a place called Beatty, Nevada. And I went in and I bought a, another can of small eight pack can of Coors. And I got in the truck. It was just pelting rain. I pulled over the side of the road and I drank the Coors. And I hit it. I lit a joint. Actually, I lit a joint, and it just calmed me down. And I started driving. And I had a duffel bag that had some CDs in it, or D, they were they weren't CDs. They were they were cassettes. Uh, yeah. And the the, uh, the U-Haul had a cassette, but I couldn't get any reception on the radio. So Fleetwood Mac's new album, I had it. I hadn't heard it, so I put it in. I thought, this is how I'm going to get out of trouble. Which album? I went uh, the the, for the Fleetwood Mac album. Rumors. Rumors. In 1976, and uh, so I'm driving, and I go to get to Reno, and I pull into the into the Holiday Inn, uh, where I used to sign for all. I used to do a lot of shows in Reno, also, and I had great relationship and we used to I used to go there and the crews would stay there at the Holiday Inn and, and I'd be able to sign for everything they never asked me anything so they said oh what's what's from the seat what's coming in I said I can't tell you but I signed I got a little mini suite I got there I took the truck over and unloaded it into a, a warehouse storage room in those days you didn't have to put up a credit card or nothing you just put it in there and I took the truck over to the airport where I used to be able to sign for cars and I got myself a Lincoln Town car mm. now I get I get on the phone and I called the road manager for Fleetwood Mac, John Courage. And I had done a favor for them and kept them in the country. I did a big favor for them in, in uh, Oklahoma City not too long before that, not much longer before that. So I called him and I said, he said, what's going on? I said, I need a gig. And they, was just, they were just doing two days on the green for Bill Graham in, in Oakland. And I, I could only get a Tuesday night. And they said, well, they said, where and when? I said, oh, he said, call Tom Ross. So I called Tom Ross, the agent, and uh, he wouldn't give it to me. He knew I was broke, and he said, look, Gary, the band's so big, I, they got to get paid, I can't. So I didn't say nothing. I got off the phone, and I thought, so I called, I called uh, J.C. back, and I said, um, he won't tell the date. He said, call him again. I said, well, I just, he said, call him again. So I called him, and I had the date. So now the guy wants the money. He wants $15,000. That's how he was going to get out of selling me the date. I said, well, I don't have it. I don't have 15 cents. What the hell? So I didn't say it to him. So I called back, and they said, call him back. So anyhow, the, the group came in, and they played. They sold out the date, and I had no money to promote it with. So what I did is I, I had enough to buy tickets. I bought spots from Terry and Burl, and I bought posters from uh, from the, Dean Torrance, and I had nothing left. And I, I so I went to the radio stations, and I said, look, Everybody wanted this show. They were so hot. Everybody wanted to co-promote it. I said, no, we're all going to announce it at the same time on a Friday afternoon, and we're, I'm going to give you each 100 tickets, each of you, the three stations or whatever it was, and you're to give them away one at a time, and you're to promote up to the time you announce the concert. You've got to tell them there's an announcement coming, and then you tell them who it is, and then you start giving the tickets away by saying, 
where where's the show who's coming what's the That's deadline right. for motors so monday morning i've got fifty seven thousand dollars in my in my satchel and the show sold out and i don't know what to do i don't want to put it in the bank because i figure somebody's going to attach me i was broke i did you know i was just it was an amazing time but what happened after that show is I, i'm not taking a long time but it's a, I was I, I wanted to quit. I had twenty seven thousand dollars. That's what I had. I, I had from nothing in two weeks to twenty seven thousand. I wasn't going to do any more shows. I went up to Lake Tahoe, got a little cabin on the lake, and every day I'd sit out on the porch and smoke a joint and walk. And one Sunday morning, it was kind of cold. I'm sitting out there having a coffee and a joint on a little porch in my cottage, and there was a road that came down. Only one road, one lane road, it was paved, and I heard some noise. And I looked, and it was like a big black limousine. I thought, who the hell is that? Who knows I'm here? I thought, well, maybe it's Fleetwood Mac. I don't know. Who was it? Well, out of the car, it happened to be, a, it became a Lincoln uh, a, a town car. It was a big Lincoln, um, a Chrysler, actually. And uh, a little guy got out, a little guy, and he had a leather jacket. He's about 65 years old, and a couple of other guys. And they looked like wise guys. And the little guy looks at me and says, you, Nassif? And I thought, I know this guy. And he, he said, uh, I said, who wants him? <laughs> I just got was being smart. Anyhow, they told me they had a place, and uh, they heard I could help them. And what happened, they had opened the Aladdin. They, this is a Detroit mob. It was the, with the head guy out of Detroit. And I don't know how they found me. I don't know how they found me. And I said, I'm not doing any more shows. Well, we heard you could help us. And uh, they had opened with the Neil Diamond and everybody, and they were losing a half a million dollars a month. They didn't know what they were doing. And they had 7,500 seats in this beautiful theater, but nobody gave it a chance. I mean, the, the, you couldn't do 30 shows a month in there in, in this small town. You couldn't do it. Right. So I told them no. And the guy was pretty cool. He said, well, you know, I'm going to leave your name. You come and stay with us for a week or whatever. He said, look around. Well, the next day, I'm in a U-Haul. I'm driving down to LA, Vegas. You know, I'm going to take a look at this place. So I end up doing the date. I took the dates, and uh, we pulled them out of that thing. Uh, they had a million dollars in their bank account in six months. And we did a show. Well, you guys did the commercials for it, I think, right. Earl. Yep. Stuff. I mean, we were doing shows every night of the week. And what happened was people were from out of town were coming in. You know, we were getting a lot of the tourist business and stuff. So they did really well. And uh, we won some awards for, for, the, for that venue. We won some awards for what we did at the... Uh, we went to the Sahara Space Center and we got a Billboard Trendsetter Award one year for breaking rock concerts on the Strip. And then I won the Trendsetter Award again for doing what I did at the Aladdin and I won the International Talent Buyer of the Year Award for that. So there were some pretty rewarding things. Just for uh, sitting in your cabin smoking a joint. What a reward. Before we go, you got to tell my favorite story, though. You're up there with your lovely wife and Sly Stone is played and what is it, his manager comes up to see you? Who's this? The guy who uh, extorts another ten grand out of you, <laughs> and you have Jimmy T. Gilly. Oh well, this wasn't. This was at the Sahara. Oh, okay. This, this, we had uh, we had lost our gig at the uh, at the uh, convention center because Deep Purple canceled about five minutes before they were going on stage. There was a riot, <laughs> so they they did, wouldn't let us do it. I didn't have any place to do shows, but the Sahara Hotel had a, a place called the Space Center. It was a big hall. And you could fit about 4,400 people in it, and it didn't compare to the 8,000 seats. So I decided we'll do shows at 8 o'clock, and we'll do another one at 2 a.m. Because Las Vegas, everybody got off at 12, and everybody unwound. They didn't go home. So, and we served drinks at the 2 o'clock show. Anyhow, the first show was with Sly and the Family Stone, and Eric Burden and War and, and the average white man. And we sold out everything, just sold it out. 
and we were happy and I and my wife and I had taken a suite there because we'd been selling the tickets there and then the next day we were going to do the settlement with this fellow Kenny Roberts I don't know if you heard of him but he was um, he owned a big radio station in Los Angeles and he was close to he lived in Palm Springs he was close to Sinatra people and stuff and he, he thought he was hot but he had taken over Sly's contract and Sly was just everybody was stealing his money and this guy was managing Sly then so he comes up to our, our, our suite and my wife, we're on the ninth floor overlooking the pool. My wife opens up the balcony doors, trying to make the ambience right. She sets the table next to it, gets the files out. And I said, you know, I had $55,000 in cash underneath the bed in a suitcase, a briefcase. And I had a check ready for him. He comes in with Steve Farnoli, the agent. He sits in the middle of the room in a chair away from the table. And there was two bodyguards. One was a, uh, an Asian bodyguard who everybody knew really well was supposed to be one bad guy or something. There was a big African-American guy that stood on the outside the door. So Kenny Roberts, this schmuck, comes in, and uh, he starts talking, and I'm, I think he's going to say, great job, right? I start to hand him the check, and he pounds his fist into the table right in front of my wife and starts screaming. He wants $5,000 more. $5,000 more. And I thought, fuck you. Can I say that? Yeah, you did. It's okay. So I thought, Jesus, you know, he wasn't fooling me. And then he started threatening again and hitting it. He says, I'm going to throw you both over that balcony if you don't get me. And he was, this guy, like, seemed serious. And I looked down at my wife, and she started trembling. And I said, give him a check. Write the check for $5,000 and give it to him. As soon as I gave him the check, he called. He said, oh, Gary, we can do more business. I said, I don't know, Kenny. I don't know about you, Kenny. I said, but I don't do business this way. He says, can you cash it? I said, no, there's no money here. <laughs> Good thinking. They went downstairs. We got our stuff together. We go down the elevator. We're going through the lobby of the hotel. I pick up the phone, and I call and cancel the check at the bank. Stop mm. payment on the check. Mm. I hear this noise. I hear this guy's voice again. Same way. He's at the front desk screaming because he wants his room free because yeah. he, he brought business. It's just a, just a jerk. So I went up to him. And I told my wife, Sandy, I said, you hold this briefcase. I went up and I said, Kenny. And the girl was crying at the desk. And my fear was he was going to cause so much trouble, the hotel wouldn't want to do any more rock concerts. Turn that down, please. So, so kid, now. Down, please. Thank you. Go ahead. Finish. Go, go for it. So anyhow, he's talking to me. And uh, all of a sudden, somebody grabs my arm. And it pulls me. And I turn and I look. And it's this guy, Jimmy Lavulo. Jimmy the Hook Lavulo. And he used to be with Sinatra's from where I met him with him. He was an Italian guy from Brooklyn. He go, hi, Gary, what are you doing? He said, I said, Get Jimmy, where you been? He says, I'm the fly now, Gary. And I, he's talking that Brooklyn talk. And I said, oh, I said, well, you with Kenny Roberts? He said, I said, well, you know, this guy I told him what he did to Sandy, and he loved Sandy. And he said, that guy, he paid me in two weeks, Gary. And I pointed at him. I put my, my finger out and my thumb. I said, you got one of these like a gun? I got two of them, Gary. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to give you your two weeks' money. You're working for me now. So this guy turns around, this Kenny Robertson, he sees Jimmy, and he says, get this guy. <laughs> Jimmy says, I can't, Kenny, because I'm working for Gary now. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, it's a play. We could talk for hours. We'll do this again sometime. Thank you very much, Gary. Happen to see the Magic Man Rock and Roll to Las Vegas. Yes, sir. Hey, Burl, what's next? Magic Man Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lighten Up Lounge right here. Hey, on LRadioLive.com. Thank you.